Hello, I'm Tracy and this is Mini Geek Critique, the podcast that encourages you to embrace your inner geek, run with it and be proud of it. I'd usually be doing things like interviews, discussions and reviews, but with the current weirdness going on around the world, I thought I'd start a new series I've had in the pipeline for a while. This podcast series is called Represent and is going to look at how representation has been portrayed in films, books and the media. We'll look at the tropes and the stereotypes of genres and how films represent those stereotypes. to no surprise that I love film. I especially love how films are made. It's one of the reasons I taught the subject for many years and as part of this new podcast I've created I want to look at what drives me, why I do what I do with Mini Geek Boutique and perhaps give an insight into some of the ideas I come up with which sometimes become products in the store. I especially love science fiction and fantasy. To take a story out of someone's head that shouldn't be possible, to then make it possible, is an incredible feat of human creativity and I love that so much. And what makes it even more impressive is that modern day real life science is making these science fiction ideas come to life. One of my favourite things to talk about in film is representation and how we have stereotypes and tropes and expectations that, over the decades, have been ingrained in us as the audience. This involves me taking you back to a time where there was no Google. A million years ago, I was in my first year of a textile design degree and we had to look at semiotics and present a topic on it. I had absolutely no idea what semiotics even was and there was no such thing as Google. So I spent a lot of time in the library trying to work out what semiotics actually meant, which apparently is the basic interpretation of symbols and signs. It was at this point I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to look at women in sci-fi films and how they've been represented in films over the decades. As I researched the project, I watched a variety of sci-fi films from various eras. I didn't have the time to watch the massive list I had accumulated and my knowledge of films wasn't as diverse as it is now. So I stood in front of my cohort and waffled at them at how women had always been perceived as the weak character until the likes of Ellen Ripley and Sarah Connor had come along. I honestly think it was a subject lost to a majority of the cohort who were more interested in designers and fashion and pop culture than anything I could have produced. It was certainly a niche presentation, but even now I feel that it's something that needs to be discussed, so that's what's led to me now. This first episode will look at the pioneering movie of Metropolis and its impact on future features and how its characters, especially the female ones, were represented. I must add that the names in the film are German and I can only apologise in advance if I pronounce the names wrong. Released in 1927, the German film Metropolis was one of the last silent movies. It was groundbreaking with its special effects, the story and the acting and influenced so many other well-known films. It developed so many of the tropes of science fiction, such as the mad scientist and futuristic sets and technology, it's easy to see why Metropolis is still so important, even 93 years later. Director Fritz Lang's vision of a utopian world powered by lesser citizens working the machines can be seen in so many other sci-fi films, such as Hunger Games, Blade Runner, The Matrix, Brazil, and even the music videos of Queen, Madonna and Lady Gaga. Considered Lang's masterpiece, this expressionist piece of art shows what could be achieved with film and practical effects and became synonymous with its art deco, innovative design and narrative. 
It's important to note that I will be discussing the film in depth, so if you haven't watched the film before, beware of the spoilers. The story of Metropolis starts with a message, the mediator between the head and the hands must be the heart. And then it takes us to the workers, slowly making their way to operate the machines that power the sprawling city above them. They're all tired, they wear the same clothes, they're clearly not happy about this endeavour and yet every day they work these machines that keep the city moving, whilst their masters live and work in luxury in the city above. One such citizen is Freda, the son of the master of the city. He has shown a strong, powerful, fit and a hit with the ladies. But it's not until we see Maria, who has brought up a large group of confused and terrified children from the lower city to show them the brothers and sisters, that we see Freda have a change of heart. When the small group is ushered away, Freda follows them and finds himself in the lower part of the city, with the workers working tirelessly to keep the city moving. Freda watches the workers become too tired to work, resulting in the machines malfunctioning, causing death and destruction of the workers in the machine. As Freda compares this to the sacrifice of the slaves to a temple, the workers replace the dead and injured and continue as normal. Freda decides to confront his father, Jo Fredersen, in the large tower of Metropolis. The foreman of the machines in the lower city is also there and tells Fredersen about the secret maps found on the dead workers, and Fredersen sends his henchman, the thin man, to investigate. Fredersen berates his assistant and Freda's friend, Josefat, for not telling him of the explosion or the maps and promptly fires him. Freda decides to rebel against his father after witnessing the lack of empathy his father had in regard to the workers and his friend. Freda goes back to the lower city and trades places with one of the exhausted workers. After a 10-hour non-stop shift, Freda makes his way to the catacombs below the machines. We see Freda's father, Fredersen, visit Rotvang, an inventor who shows him his latest invention, the Machine Man, a way to bring back his lost love, Hell. She is revealed to be the wife of Fredersen, who died giving birth to Freda, and Rotfang has never forgiven Fredersen for this. Together, they decipher the maps and make their own ways to these catacombs. Freda follows his fellow workers down to the catacombs to see Maria address the gathered audience to talk about a mediator. Maria declares that for the irritated workers to not rise up, there must be a mediator and that he will come to them. The workers are still impatient and they leave. Upon hearing this, Fredersen tells Rotwang that he should make the machine man into the likeness of Maria to sow discord between the workers and her and destroy the workers' belief in this woman. Freda and Maria embrace and promise to meet each other at the cathedral the next day to continue their plan of peaceful resolve. When Freda and Fredersen individually leave the catacombs, Rotwang stays behind and kidnaps Maria, taking her to his home. He sets up his lab and begins the transfer process of Maria's likeness to the man-machine. After Freda realises that Maria is not going to meet him as arranged, he finds himself at Rotfang's house, who tells him that Maria is with his father. He sees the imposter Maria embracing his father back at the tower and has a breakdown and collapses from the betrayal of his love. As Freda recuperates in his bed, the imposter Maria encouraging debauchery and violence at the Sons Club, she begins to sow distrust into the workers in the catacombs by reminding them of who does all the work to keep the city working and that they should rise up and destroy the machines. It is not until Freda and Josephat approach the workers and declare that this isn't the real Maria addressing them. The workers follow imposter Maria to the machines, destroying what they can, including the heart machine which causes flooding in the lower city where the workers' children are. The real Maria, having escaped from Rotwang's house, makes her way to the city to rescue the children before the city floods, 
Freda and Josephat find an helper escape to the upper city. Believing their children to have died, the hysterical workers take the imposter Maria and burn her at the stake. Freda, believing it to be the real Maria, watches in horror till it is revealed to be the robot. A delusional Rotvang believes the real Maria to be his beloved Hell and takes her to the roof of the cathedral, where Freda follows and a fight occurs. Rotwang falls to his death and Maria ensures that Freda fulfills his destiny as mediator by linking the hands of the foreman and his father. So how important was this movie? The film was part of the German Expressionist movement and is considered the first feature-length film of the sci-fi genre and one of the last silent movies. Even 93 years later, you can see its influence on other media formats. Madonna, Lady Gaga, Queen, all heavily feature a Metropolis influence. Blade Runner, Star Wars, The Matrix and even Tank Girl, heavily influenced by the style of the characters and their lavish sets. Even the futuristic technology that is shown in the feature we now see in our everyday lives. It even introduced the mad scientist trope. Rotvang's lab and his unkempt appearance influencing so many of his successors. It's interesting to point out that whilst the film was directed by Fritz Lang, it was his wife, Thea von Haber, who wrote the script in the accompanying novel, and together they spent 17 months creating Lang's masterpiece. But it was an untrained Bridget Helm who brought the dual characters of Maria to life. Her first major role, Maria would be the character she would become synonymous with, and would be forever cast, much to her chagrin, as the femme fatale. The roles demanded an almost split personality of the good and righteous Maria and the evil manipulative imposter. The incredible facial expressions that Helm used to portray each character were remarkable and as the audience you could definitely tell who was who. Despite being nearly a century old, this film is not just unique with its special effects but with the character's portrayal. The real Maria isn't just a weak female side character, she is central to the plot. She awakens Freda to the turmoil of the workers, she is the one who decides the mediator, she is the one who addresses the workers to peacefully resolve their issues. She is a strong woman, compassionate and there are times when Lang portrays her as some sort of angelic deity with her composure and approach to the audience. Even down to the clothes she wears, they are simple, reflective of her position, but comfortable. It is in complete contrast to this that imposter Maria is shown. The amount of jewellery she wears, the little clothing she has on, especially during the Sun's Club scene, where she is dancing to the enthralled male audience. Her manipulation of that audience and her lack of empathy as they fight and kill each other. The similarities between this imposter Maria and Babylon the Great mentioned in the cathedral are shown in the way she dances, the garb she wears, the way she behaves. She is all seven sins in one. The way she is able to control a ravenous dribbling audience and revels in the debauchery that occurs soon after makes her a formidable foe. Was it Van Harbour's influence on how Maria's character was portrayed, an important aspect of her character development? If she hadn't been written by a woman, would the story have been different? Her portrayal in the film shows her to be multidimensional. She is caring and compassionate, yet strong-willed and determined. Would this have been any different if the story had been written by a man? Freda is seen as the hero, but it is Maria who is the saviour. Freda might be the prophesied intermediary, but it is through the good Maria's compassion and encouragement that he is able to fulfil his duty as mediator. infamous transfer scene we are shown the mad scientist lab the first of its kind and one that sets the precedence for future mad scientists maria's image transfer takes place using real practical effects 
To make the robot itself, a body cast was made of the actress, Bridget Helm, and a costume made around it. It was made using a sort of plastic wood which made it slightly flexible but allowed a metallic finish to the completed costume. Despite this, Helm still suffered from cuts and bruises and became increasingly hot wearing the costume under all of the studio lighting. The collage of the faces of the workers were all done in real time, superimposing each section onto the same film that had been rewound. Maria's face being central to all of these reactions. Helm's ability to contort her face into a myriad of expressions is what gives the film character. But what of its legacy? Maria was clearly an anomaly, a character influencing the lives of her fellow man. She and her robotic counterpart is the only major female character in the whole feature. Even Fritz Lang regretted the patriarchal management of the story. The relationship between a father and his son, the son's realisation of the abuse of his fellow citizens, the huge class divide of the lower and upper city. But it is Bridget Helm's portrayal as both a saviour and a sinner who will be forever remembered and would continue to influence storytelling for years to come. But what happened to the strong female character that von Harbour and Helm had pioneered? Within the space of a few short years, she seems to have been replaced by scantily clad sex objects or screaming victims of violence. There is no in-between. There is no betrayal of a well-balanced, multidimensional figure. She is secondary to the strong male hero and is often portrayed as weak and useless, easy on the eye, and can only be saved by the actions of that same hero. And that's what this series is about, looking at how these women have shaped and changed over the decades. And with a legacy such as Maria, they might have their work cut out for them. Thank you.